0: I have a a big task in front of me, and that is I'm hoping to move through, I think it's six sections tonight, and so I'm going to be blazing fast because I have six more to finish up. I'm going to mention this because I won't probably do it at the end. May 31st, our last Wednesday night, it's right after Memorial Day, so you have a whole day to do this if you want to, prepping. I'm not preparing anything besides my own thoughts, if they pop out. And you've heard a lot of my thoughts. So you're teaching the lesson as a group. And so we're going to be moving around uh, individually. If you're uncomfortable speaking, you can hand me, and again, what you've learned personally. So personal application from Psalm 119, something that you want to share. Uh, And the idea is, and understand this, iron sharpens iron. Uh, So as we talk together as believers, we're going to sharpen ourselves in how we handle the word. Uh, two, uh, when you read in Hebrews, it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Why? And it's not because they want church attendance. It's because we as believers need this community to coming together. And so we're going to capitalize uh, on learning from each other from Psalm 119. I'm very excited about that. It's our closeout for Awana as well in Youth 180. And so I'll be in for part of it. I might bounce out to connect with the kids and connect with the teens. But I'm excited to hear um, what you guys are learning, what we all learn to, together as a body of believers, because that's going to help us all grow uh, I've enjoyed Psalm 119, I, you know, you're, you're working through it, and you think, man, I'd love to, another shot at that, I'd love to teach that again, I'd love to uh, do that somewhere else, I've even thought, man, this would be great to take to Nicaragua, or uh, do, a, do a short conference on this to help people understand the power of God's Word and how they should respond to it. As you well know, if I have to share anything uh, and talk, I'm going to be talking about precepts, because that word, I'm enamored with that word, so that one's, that one's on my mind, the minutia of God's law, it's the detail. But let's dive into Psalm 119, and, and we're on the one on trust consistently. So I'll see if I can get this to maybe work. No, there we go. Um, so we're on the trust consistently. And then trust is, as you know, a big thing. Uh, if we analyze the world, it seems fewer and fewer things can be trusted. Um, I put this as a question just to spark your mind can we trust the media? right? I don't think anyone trusts the media. Even the people that are in the media don't trust the media. They, they know where they're at. And, and I grew up, when I was a kid, I grew up listening to news and you, you, you took it at face value. You took it as a reporting. Uh, and that's just not the case. My kids don't have an innate trust of the media, which I think is good. It's not overly trustworthy. Why? Because they have their agenda and they promote it, right? No matter what you're looking at, you see that. Can you trust the person that Can you trust the person what is supposed to be a confidential conversation? Right? Because it seems that's only good as long as it suits them. Have you ever had that? Have you ever talked to somebody in confidence and then it comes back out later on? You're like, wait a second, I thought we were talking in confidence. Well, yeah, but I thought that person should know about it. Well, what's the point of having a conversation in confidence if you're going to make a judgment call later on that that person should hear about it uh, because can we trust the education system? And look, it's sad, Um, I say this, only if you personally know the teachers and principals and all involved, and they're actively fighting the indoctrination to a worldly twisted view and a perverse sexuality. There's article after article after article um, that pops up. My point is this, there's not many things we can trust. And trust is a big thing, yet so much of what we encounter in life is untrustworthy, falls through. But that's not the case with God's Word. And that's where we're driving to in Psalm 89 um, because, and this is so important, it's never changing, which means it's always relevant. When someone says God's Word's not relevant, what they're saying is, I don't trust God's Word. It's not trustworthy. It's an attack on God's Word. It's a reflection of who they are. See, God's Word is never changing. It's always relevant. It's always just. That's a hard one for people. When people tell me, it's like, oh, "I have a hard time with the God of the Old Testament," then you have a hard time with God, not the God of the Old Testament. And that God is just. And so, when you have a hard time with it, it should indicate something to you. It indicates that you have a hard time with justice, not that God does. God's not beholden to our culture. Our culture is wrong. And there was one thing. It was Paul right in Romans? Let God be right, and every man a what? A liar. I used to teach that to little kids. The Bible is right no matter what. No matter what your teachers say, no matter what your parents say, no matter what's said, the Bible is right no matter what. Because that's what the world says. We're right no matter what. They want us to tell us to trust science, to trust this. What, what's the thing about science? Science is always what? Changing. changing. If you're in science, you know that. From my years at tech to what they teach now to, to the years in between, they're changing their mind all the time. But what is the one thing that scientists say? It's science. You can trust us. It's science. We've heard this, right? Look at the pandemic. If you've never seen the unreliability of science, and yet the unquestioned confidence they have in being trustworthy, oh, we're scientists. We've studied this a lot. We know what we're talking about. Oh, we changed our mind. Well, what about two minutes ago? What, what changed? Oh, well, new information. <laughs> we discovered more. In other words, it's not trustworthy, yet it claims to be. There's one thing that is trustworthy. We can know God's word is trustworthy. Now, this is the question we're going to end with, and it is a discussion question, a lot of thought ones, but what inhibits our complete trust in God's unchanging, forever relevant, boundless word? What inhibits that? What comes up to make us question it? What drives someone to say, I have a hard time with the God of the Old Testament, which is a hard time with God, which means they have a problem, or I have a hard time time believing that. It dies into themselves. But we want to get real specific when we get to this question. What is inhibiting this? And we'll walk through Let me read Psalm 89, uh, verses uh, 89 through 96. It says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. And don't miss those words of forever settled, which means is firm, completed. The word all what goes on there. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. And I love that. Tucked in the middle of God's word is an affirmation of his creation and his sustaining of that creation. It's woven through all of scripture. It's one of the number one things scientists love to throw out. And actually, it's not just Genesis 1-3 through that people are throwing out. There's some When I say God's used them in spite of the fact that they undermine creation, but I have a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to creation. God created the world, like you see it in seven days. The seven days of creation are literally seven days. It's not that difficult when you get into the Hebrew. It's very, very clear. People get confused because they want to cater to science. What inhibits their complete trust in God's Word? Science does. Actually, their own education. Guys, I respect and love. Took a long time to come to the right conclusion. Why is that? All through Scripture, it's woven in. He established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget thy precepts. My favorite word, the minutia. I will never forget the details. For with them thou hast quickened me. In other words, I'm not going to wander from one little iota of what God says, is what he's committing to. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. Verse 96 is... An amazing verse, and we'll chat briefly about it when we get to it. But the psalmist here sees some things the forever foundation of God's word. It is forever trustworthy or it is forever relevant. A trust that continues as he sees God's faithfulness in all eras and times. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is all generations, God has never proved unfaithful. So the God of the Old Testament which is the same God of the New Testament, has been faithful through all of this. He is the unchanging one. In the psalmist seeing how God constantly sustains the world. Why does the world abide? Why do we breathe air? Why does it function? Why does it spin on its axis? There's a thousand people that have a thousand reasons in science, but most of the scientific reasons don't to add up. The world works because God sustains it. They have no idea what would happen if he removes his hand. We have an indication of it. They do not. Going on there, Um, I always love the part where it says everything is your servant. It serves God, all of creation. And all you have to do is think about the flood. When God decided to flood the earth, he just had the earth serve him and served his purpose. Um, It goes on, God is trusted as he orders this world with his word. They continue this day according to thine ordinances. This world functions based on God's law. And God is trusted as he orchestrates order in our world through his word. In contrast to our ever-changing world, where one day you can be ruling socially and the next be ostracized and canceled, that's how it works nowadays, where sadly we seem enslaved to the likes and approval of strangers and even family and friends, where we need that approval, we need that mark, we need that confidence booster, we need our world to be okay with this. It blows my mind Uh, when I listen to preachers pop up and they preach certain sermons and I'm thinking, why are you capitulating to culture? Why? Your job was to stand up there and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Your job was to preach his word, not your own. And there you are barking about things that will make you popular in the world. You think, well, we're trying to be becoming, you know, you're you're a fraud. You're going for what's untrustworthy instead of what's trustworthy because they want to like, because they want the world's approval. In contrast to all of that, the fickleness of our society stands the forever word of God because his word is settled in heaven. It's not going anywhere. It's not changing at all. This world spins on the dictates of God's ordinances, his judgments. It does not spin based on the world's judgments, even though it may seem that way. I find it fascinating to listen to what would be considered the brightest minds of our culture. Uh, I use Stephen Hawking all the time, because he's one of the ones famous ones for saying that after we're dead, we go onto a garbage heap, If you've ever read some of the things that he said about how this world began, you're thinking, wow, it would make a great fiction movie. It looks like he got too enamored with Star Wars and some other things when he was a kid. I don't know what it is, but it has no connection to reality at all. And I always think, what if the world ran on the rules he thinks it runs on? What chaos would ensue? But even though the world thinks it's in charge, it's not in charge. Because it spins on God's dictates. The reality is this, and this is what verse 96 tells us. Everything else ends but God. Human cultures, philosophies, and trends of progress rise up, but often before our eyes or maybe a generation or two end up dying or morphing in some way or fashion. That was a commentator's concept that I read. That verse 96 is, is a powerful verse. I have seen an end of all perfection. In other words, I've seen the end of all these completed theories and ideologies and ideas. What are we up against in the world today, right? It's always this way if you look at it. If we could only do this, if we can, it, we've got to stop climate change. If we do that, we've solved all of our problems. No. And then it'll be the next thing. If we can solve this social ill, if we can recompense for this thing that's taking place, if we can do this, it'll take place. And here's what's fascinating, what God lets us know. All of that stuff will end. No matter how great it seems and however good it seems, it all goes away. Why? They are limited. His word is unlimited. It says, I've seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. And that word in... Hebrew is boundless. It has no containment. It has no limit. So now we come to our discussion question. We'll take a couple minutes at each table. I want us to get honest. I want us to see what we see the inhibitions in the world are. I would love to dialogue briefly about what inhibits us. So um, what inhibits our complete trust in God's unchanging, forever relevant, boundless word? I'm going to give us an answer here. We don't want its direction. What limits it? Our desire sometimes. We don't see things from God's perspective. We are struggling or distracted with this life. What inhibits our complete trust in God's unchanging word? Um, health will. Our mind will. Our emotions will. These are just some of the things that popped into my mind uh, so, I can make it very personal. What inhibits my trust in god 's word? I find that my emotions can be very untrustworthy and become inhibiting factors. Um, my desire can be an inhibiting factor, and if you think about that, sometimes when you go to god 's word and, and you 're you're running against something that, that you know and you don 't even know it on a conscience level in, in, this, in the sense that it, it, it buffets you i mean, i 've shared and i 've shared this multiple times, but I read through Titus over fifty times. And I, again, the first six weeks, I had one word, and I knew exactly what it meant, and I wasn't in my mind mentally fighting against it, but obviously it was working and working to ingrain in my heart and soul this idea of quick-tempered or quick emotioned And then you finally start evaluating your response time, and I am a quick-mouthed person, if you want to call it that. It can be very skillful in winning arguments. It can be detrimental to making sure that my emotions and my mind are conformed to his word and I'm not just spouting off on my own because I'm I'm fast with that so what is a strength becomes quickly a what a weakness why because I haven't filled it with God's word. you imagine if the quick response was his word? Well, he ground that in. <laughs> Six weeks of reading that same word and same word and same word. And what is it? Well, there's a, there's a wrestling that goes in. We, we see something in ourselves that, oh, this is this is This is good. Well, how does it look from God's perspective? Is it being used for his purpose? So again, emotions, direction, desire. Why don't we take a few minutes and kind of dive in. So go ahead and wander into the realm of what the world resists for, but also maybe on your own side, what you might resist it for. Let me grab uh, table number one over here. What, what inhibits maybe you or the world that you see? What's one factor that inhibits there? yep control becomes a big thing right we don't we We don't trust because we don't have a, we feel the grip uh tied to it. Table number four so we have what we call rewording the mistrust that's within us that's doubt right we 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 doubt if God would be right or some at some level or if it's going to come through, which is, again, doubting God, because it, it's, it's a bit of the God complex we have in ourselves, so we want to be it. Fear becomes a reason, right, that so we, we look at what could happen to us, can inhibit our trust. Table number five, what do you have there? We're worried that we don't know. And what's interesting is I think that cropped up even at table number three. It's like, do I, do I even know uh, what's going on? Do I know his word well enough? And here's the interesting thing. I'm going to flip that around, right? How can you know? What should we do if we feel that we're ignorant? What, what should it drive us to? Study, right? What does it typically do? We distance, right? We tend to pull back because we we feel a barrier, right? So there are barriers to interpretation that we have to overcome, but none of them are overcome. It's not like a Mario movie, right? If you hit the right button and then bam, the walls fall down and you run through the pipe and everything goes perfect. The idea is it takes work and study and interaction with it. And so Satan wants to, us to feel that barrier. He wants to feel that that hurdle. Oh, I can't understand this. Well, the Bible can be understood. Are we going to always understand everything? Well, probably not, but that's due to the depth of Scripture, right? As we study, we, we know, and then we learn more, and we keep, because it's the living Word of God. So there's always something there. And no matter how many times we read through it and we study, we can keep digging. That's the beautiful thing. You'll never get to the bottom of what the Bible can teach you. There's always something uh, there. Table two, what do you have? We have to want it right, we have to seek Him. Uh, Hebrews, I think it's 11.6, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, John Blanchard actually uses that verse. Uh, It's in the booklet Ultimate Questions, which is a book I use for evangelism and apologetics tied together. That's what I go to. So if I'm talking with somebody, I don't care where they are on the spectrum of things, that's a book I hit. And the first segment is, is there somebody out there? And he talks about that, him being a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so here's the fascinating thing. Sometimes we don't trust God's word because we don't seek God's word. We're not pursuing it. It goes to that idea of desire, but also goes to where our heart is. And then the idea of understanding that we've talked about, uh, and that is a ploy of Satan to say, well, you're not going to understand this right. You're, you're going to blow it. You're, you're, you're not going to have, you're going to be too simplistic in this. And the reality is, is that is to get us away from the Word and thinking that we can understand it. Uh, we grow together as a church as we come together to worship and we grow, uh, but we also are called to read and study on our own uh, to make it happen. Number three, table three here, what do you have? Does God's Word confront what we're used to, what we're comfortable with? what we've made okay for a long time. The more you do something, does it become more regular to you? We talked about that, right, a couple weeks ago in one of the sections, how we can be blinded to... What we need to see, maybe it was actually in Titus, we talk about that. We lock in, talk about the older men, right, where you can get locked into something and you, you start missing the discernment that's there. Uh, and that's part of that trust factor is, is letting it cut a clean cut sometimes. We need we need a, a, a new dive in instead of just, well, I know how to buffer against this conviction because I, I just say, that's okay, this is okay. And so we understand um, that God's word stands sure It has the answers for life. It does allow us, though, and require us. And that's the next section is to discern. This is not moving. There we go. Maybe it'll move. Um, To discern consistently. And this is 97 through 104. Now, obviously, there's going to be this overlap in building that comes with Psalm 119. I'm hoping as we split them out, we can see some of the distinctions without messing with the whole unity of the chapter. So here it goes. Um, and think through this. Is this how you talk about God's word? Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Though thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. That's a reality, isn't it? What do we all wish for? I can't wait till the U.S. passes this law and we will never have to worry about lies again. Yeah, no. We're going to forever have the enemies against God's Word, but do we believe that what we have from God makes us wiser than this world? Um, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Why is he smarter than his teachers? Because he only or exclusively or intensely thinks on God's Word. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And don't miss all the contrast. This is Hebrew poetry at its best, but he keeps setting it up. I know more than my teachers. Why? He doesn't stop there, right? We have that arrogance in our world. I know more than you. I know you can't teach me anything, right? We're used to that statement. So when we read it, we're like, oh, look at that guy. He's confident. He tells you why. I know more than my teachers. Why? Because I know God's law. I know more than the ancients because I know the details of your word. Uh, Your word is sweeter to me than, than the sweetest honey, And you got to understand culture, because when I read, anytime I read about honey, I don't even like honey. I have to force myself to eat honey. I don't enjoy it. And so sometimes we read it like, ugh, I'm glad. Who would want to eat honey anyway? But in their culture, that's what's sweet to them. What's your favorite sweet? Someone throw something out there. Your favorite sugar. That's not bad. Starburst. Why he went... He went, I love it. I, like, I love Starburst too. Even when they get too hard to chew, I just work it, you know. Anything else? What's your sweetest thing? What hits your, what hits your brain when you think of it? Donuts. What? There we go. Banana nut muffins. <laughs> Milkshakes. Now think of that. Is God's word better than that? As you think about eating it, that's what he's trying to say. It's what he wants. It is the luxury. It is the sweet. It is the extra. It is what he craves. And then through my my precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, so I know the minutia of your word and I understand it. Therefore, I hate every false way. He's not bragging about how good he is. I never do anything wrong. I'm so good in and of myself that I don't bother thinking. I don't even think a bad thought. No, he says, I think so much about your word that what is opposite of your word I now hate. And that's why I use the word discern consistently. There was a movie, it's about 20 years old now, uh, called My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and I remember it because Heather and I watched it on our honeymoon. So uh, it's a comedy about an Orthodox Greek girl and her journey of meeting her husband and getting married. So she marries an unorthodox Non-Greek, and he becomes a Greek, and it's all filled with funny things. It all ties around her family and this involved, humorous kind of play out. Um, there was an interesting side joke that I remember from the movie, and it centers around the dad who thought Windex cleared up all types of health problems, and he would spray it right on his skin blemishes, and they weave this through the story. And so on the wedding day. She gets in the car and she has a a, a zit on her face that she's covered up with makeup. And then the guy she's marrying is like, well, I had a zit too, but I sprayed it with Windex and it went away. So this whole idea that Windex clears everything. And you always see the dad spraying Windex on the car, spraying Windex on skin. So it's just this little side note. Why do I say that? Because I want us to tie into what the illustration was saying. The dad was 100% vested in Windex solving a host of issues. Windex works. And the whole premise is, we know you're not supposed to spray Windex on your face, right? That, that, that the joke is, well, it took a pimple away. Well, if it cleans the window, it can clean my face, right? But he's, he's committed. From cleaning to healing, this is the 100% solution. And why am I saying that? When you discern consistently, you're not looking for another solution to the problem. You are vested in the answer of God's word. Not that it's going to be good enough. It's that it is all that you need. Discern consistently means everything is funneled through this idea of God's word. We have the trustworthy word of God. We saw that in the previous section. We know that. And now we, he's driving a point forward. Is that we need to engage with it correctly to discern life. Therein lies true wisdom. Thou through thy commandments... Understand the, 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 the conditional statement. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. I understand more than the ancients. All because thy testimonies are my meditation. I keep thy precepts. The word of God makes it possible for the psalmist to refrain his feet from every evil way. He's not departed from God's judgments. He sees God's word as sweeter than honey. When I talked about it, he savors it, he desires it, he enjoys it. And through the discernment of God's word, he can say, through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is a thought question, and I'm going to land here. I want to read it just to get it in mind. If I find the false way appealing, what is missing? It's all answered in 104, but let me walk through some things and just some other thoughts. Examine yourself here. Do you find the world appealing? This is a pause moment in our life, and and actually God's Word calls us to this. As we take communion, uh, Paul writes, examine yourself, even examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. In other words, deep thinking, critical deep thinking is called in in Scripture. Uh, We're not here for puff pieces, and God's interested in the deep and deep thought about our salvation and about His Word. Um, Are you intrigued by what the world offers, thinks the direction society is moving? I have watched way too many Christians, and I don't know if it's just uh, youth, because I love what Paul says. I'm still in the younger man category. I've got a couple more years before I'm in the older man category, but I'm going to enjoy my youth for a little longer. But just in the last four years, three years maybe, I've noticed sadly, how much supposed or, or, or committed Christians chase society. I heard one person say it, and I actually believe it. Uh, you ever heard the word social justice? You know that word, right? And I heard a preacher say this. He says, I don't need the world to define justice. God's defined justice. You see how enamored we are with that word? That's a very... There's a whole, there's a whole denomination that was very conservative that, yes, I'm off balance and I'm almost falling, um, that is um, enamored with this. They, they've made a public statement to go after that. And I had an opportunity to talk to somebody, the guy that made that statement, and he says, they've let the horses out of the corral. They're not putting them back in now. Their whole, their whole emphasis has been now social justice, and it's tainted everything. Why? They've let the world define justice. As a believer, you don't need the world to do it, but are we enamored with that? And then pause a moment and ask yourself, is that direction that you're seeing, that we're called to, is it a false, misleading, and deceitful direction? And this is critical thinking. This is examining yourself because you might find that thought appealing to you. It appeals to your emotions. It appeals to your upbringing. It appeals to your life. It appeals to what you feel is your way. And then I say, think from God's perspective, and this is a leading question designed for us to land on truth. Does the world have an agenda? What's the agenda? That, would we agree that the world has an agenda? There's not a neutral place. It has an agenda. So I'm walking us through this. Is its direction, no matter how neutral seeming, leading in a truthful direction? Process that for... This is why... It blows my mind why people have gone... I mean, I'm talking... The whole, and I'm not naming because I don't like to to, it's not going to help us in that sense, but it is a conservative denomination with leaders that I've respected and read, and I am still trying to wrap my mind around it. Uh, one of the books, if you want to read about it, is by Vodi Balkum called Fault Lines, an amazing book, and he's showing us that right now we're standing like this, and he says, it's going to be a divide, and they are going to be on the opposite end, and it's, and that's what's happening. We see this huge rift in focus that's going on, and I'm asking this question because I think it's driven in this, Section, does the world ever do anything neutrally? Is it seemingly innocent? It might seem or appear innocent. I'm not saying be skeptical, anti anything. You know, I'm I'm fine when there's an oil spill to clean up the oil and and take recourse on the climate. Do I worship our climate? Absolutely not. Do I think that we can destroy our world? Absolutely not, because God holds it in his hands and no one is knocking the ball out of his hands. Do I think we should be responsible with it? Of course I do, but I'm not going to worship the climate. Do I think climate change is happening? I don't. Am I a climate denier? I'm not a science denier. I just believe the Bible over them. And I don't believe we can do anything to knock the ball out of God's hands. I do believe in being responsible. I'm not for dumping oil in the ocean or pollution and all that stuff. It's just see what the world drives you to. You have to be on one side or the other. How dare you believe the Bible? I say that because rarely is there agenda that is neutral. Um, it's rarely leading in a truthful direction. And I, I put a note here. Never forget the ultimate goal of this world system. And it is not for you to grow in obedience to Christ. It's never that no matter how neutral it seems, you want to feel like it's neutral, that whole controversy in the Loudon school system, go read about, uh, if you remember, the FBI put parents on terrorist lists. You remember reading about that? And we're on the conservative side of the, of the world, right? So we're a little bit more worked up about this. Like, what is going on? If you read what the far left was writing about what they want to do, which has been revealed, it'll blow your mind. They wanted to beat, I'll go to prison if I could just punch them. I wish they would die. I mean, just horrible, horrific things. I say that because there's no innocence in this world. This world's sinful and it's broken. I drive this all to this point about this section. If I find the false way or the world's way appealing what's missing, let me read it. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. If you're worried about being tricked by this world you're not looking for some other person to talk and listen to. I'm going to say this bluntly. As much as I hope that when I preach, I can bring insight to you, if you're not going to be in God's Word yourself, you're not going to not to not be duped. You want to not be deceived by this world, you have to be enamored with God's Word. Not with a preacher, not with an author, These are all helpful things if it drives you to God's Word and a deeper understanding of God's Word, but you've got to know God's Word. And this is such a critical section. They're all critical, but for me... Uh, My mind wraps around, I love thy law, my meditation all the day. It's your commandments that make me wiser. I have more understanding because your testimonies are my meditation. In other words, what I think about all the time. I understand more than the ancient because I'm into your minutia. I'm into the details of it. I've refrained my feet from every evil way. Why? That I might keep thy word. How do you know not to go in the evil way? Because you know what God says. You want to be discerning. Be in God's word. If you are drawn to the world, false, I use that word on purpose instead of saying the society, culture's way. If you find culture appealing, what's missing? And the answer is God's word is missing. You're missing God's word. No sugarcoat there. You're enamored by that. It's not God's Word's fault. It's the fact that you don't know God's Word. You want more discernment? Keep reading God's Word. You still don't understand what you should do with this world? Read more of God's Word. Seek His Word. Seek the iron sharpening iron. That's why we're going to talk about Psalm 19 together on the last Wednesday, because we want to drive us as a body of believers, as His children, to take His word and to consume it and to meditate on it and to sharpen each other and to constantly dive in because what's missing is His word and the deep part of His word. God's minute details need to be woven into the fabric of our lives. You want to fix what's missing? Start weaving. And that's not going to happen at a conference as good as they are. That's going to happen every day, weaving. If you've ever done any type of weaving, right, you have to. If you miss one, right, and it looks all off, it's wrong. My mom did cross-stitch. She still does, I think, unless she's too blind to do it, but she's been cross-stitching. I have a, a, a one picture that has always enamored me, so my mom's made all, I think, most of her sons. I don't know. I got one, so that's all that matters. Um, it's a cross-stitch of a sailor man, and, and I've always loved it. It hangs up in my house. I've enjoyed it. It's something that she's done. I know my brother Ed has it hanging in his office. This is something that's important to us, but I tried as a kid. You're just like, oh, my mom does cross-stitch. I'll try it. I realize that's not the most manly thing in the world, so now you know why my grandfather trying to teach me to carve wood, you know? Stay away from the cross-stitch, Kenny. Get on the wood, carving, knife, sharp, cut yourself. I did get into wood carving, enjoyed immensely. And I've cut myself innumerable times uh, to the point that my thumb is basically numb. My carving teacher's like, you need to put something on your thumb. You're, you're too dumb to stop the knife on your own. Stop carving towards you, Kenny. That was the, the idea. Um, all that to say, it's so intricate and you make one little mistake. It's all the details And that's what we need is the detailed intricacy of putting it in the hole. You got to make the little X pattern and it has to be perfect as you walk through. And that's what it's talking about. Get God's word into the fabric of your life. Start weaving carefully and precisely dive into his word. Uh, We desperately need the precepts of his word woven into life. And then I kind of follow up. We need to follow consistently. And that's 105 through 112. It's a one that we know, right? And that's why I use the word follow. It says here, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it. This is what he's sworn, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. He's sharing his situation here. He's under a ton of pressure, pain, persecution. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, According unto thy word, not according to what I want, but what your word says, except I beseech thee the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. In other words, this guy is talking about being at the wit's end of pressure and, and his soul is in his hand. It depicts that it's just right out there, yet he's not going to wander from God's uh, judgments or law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. How do I avoid the trap of the world? Keep God's minutia. Thy testimonies have I taken as a heritage for how long? Forever, don't miss those words. When he makes that statement, this is my inheritance. This is my heritage. This is what I want. This is what I want to be known about forever. There was a shortening of a statement um, that this. it was some... Way back when, it's a longer quote, and one, I think Ligonier shortened it, and I I love the shortened version. It says, this is what they want to be remembered. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And I actually want to put that in my office as a reminder. Uh, We all could post that. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And this verse jumps at my mind. The Thy Testaments have taken as a heritage forever. What do I want my legacy to be? Your word. What do I want remembered? Your word. Not me, not my actions, what I've done. I want your word to endure forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. And anytime you read that, then you ask yourself this question. Is God's word the rejoicing of your heart? Is that what makes your heart leap for joy? Does this bring pleasure? Does this bring uh, singing songs? And, and think about that. And I try to liken it So, what makes me smile, uh, my kids make me smile. There's certain things they do that bring joy, that bring rejoicing. If you're a grandparent, I know it's like exponential, supposedly. It just keeps multiplying. Well, then, does God's Word bring that same kind of joy in your heart as you engage with it? And if it doesn't, then we need to work on our hearts. You know how you work on your heart? Read God's Word. Dive into it. Study it. Grow that love that's there. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. And what has he done with his heart? What's the word there? What does it mean to incline? Yeah. I have this in my mind, it's leaning. Yeah. I want something to fall that way. So what do I do? I lean it in that direction. Who leaned the heart? This believer did. It's active, is it not? You know Christ is your Savior, and you see here somebody saying, yeah, but I inclined my heart. I I leaned in this direction so that I would fall that way. If you can incline your heart towards the statutes to perform them, what else can you do then as this child? You could lean the other way, right? If this thing could be leaned, if I can incline my heart towards doing what he says, then I also could what? climb the other way. And so what it's driving us to, and that's why I use the word follow consistently, is I'm, we're driven to action. Apparently, if you touch the bottom of this, it changes it. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Junk. Just kidding. <laughs> Theron would yell at me. like, Don't throw your iPad, Kenny. You have to leave that. If you're frustrated, put it on my desk and I'll take care of it from there on out. Follow consistently, right? The, I'm going to read a quote. One writer said this, the idea of this section is of a deliberate commitment to his word. That's what's strong in this section. The verbs in 109 and 110 express determination. So I want you, as you see this section, this idea of following consistently, I'll try to bring it, maybe not. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. There we go. Sorry. Sorry. I'm no good at the iPad. We're getting to the end. That's one way to finish. Um, well, There we go. Here's the idea he's trying to say. Everything drives, it's, it's not casual. That's my point with the word incline. That's the idea of following consistently. You are not going to trip over obedience. Paul, man, I accidentally obeyed God's word. What do you know? I hope I keep accidentally doing that. Never. Comes out of anyone's mouth ever. Determined to follow his word consistently. That's why the word is the lamp and the word is a light. It's not to be a light, though, used selectively. As another writer commentates, the the word will be a lamp to you only if you follow it non-begrudgingly, even when you don't like what it shows you. To make sense. It's either your light or it's not. You can't be like, yeah, I don't like what you're showing. I'm going to turn the light off. Well, you're really not making his word a lamp and a light to you. You're, you're, you're saying, well, if I want to use it, I will. And if I don't want to use it, that's not a light unto your path. It's either your light or it's not your light is what it's saying. It's going to be your lamp or it's not your lamp. And that's why he says, I have sworn and I will perform it. As life presses down, as circumstances unfold, do we cry with the writer, yet do I forget, not forget thy law? And no matter what attack may lie ahead, have we committed and lived out that we have not erred from thy precepts? And here's the thought question, and I have to end for tonight, so I failed yet again. But here's the beautiful thing. You have your Bible. You have all of Psalm 119. I will try again. I always say this to Heather uh, when we're late, right? She's like, we're 25 minutes from Fredericksburg and it's five minutes till 12 and we're supposed to be there at 12. We're late. And I obnoxiously say, we're not late yet (laughs) because it's not 12. So I'm not late. 12.01, I'm late. Well, you'll never make it there. I say, yeah, I know. But for the next six minutes, I'm not late. I'm on time, right? This is the idea. And so I'm going to stick with that. You know, I'm 25 minutes away from Fredericksburg, and I have five minutes left, which is one Wednesday, but I'm still not late yet. And I didn't finish until it's all said and done. But here's the question I want to ask is, does God's word jump to your mind as life circumstances unfold? So when you're confronted with a frustrating circumstance, what's the first thing that you do? When your hand slips on the wrench and you scratch your hand as you're building something that you'd rather not be building, what's your first thought? This really hit my mind because my five kids are at home and I've got them from 17 to 7 now. I can actually say it's legit, 17 to 7. And you do notice your imprint on your uh, 17-year-old. And I'm like, hey man, you shouldn't do that when you get frustrated. And then I'm like, you are a hypocrite, Kenny. You are his name's Kenneth too, where his real name is. He goes by Landon, but you know, and I'm like, man, you know, you watch. And I think to myself, and this is a jump in my mind when I'm thinking about all these circumstances. And I had a string of frustrating circumstances that took place, from tire blowing right before a trip, to well not working, to I mean, you just name it. It's just and every time I'm like, every time it crops up, my first response, and I'm like, ah. Uh, and I keep getting stuck on this question: Does God's word jump to my mind when life circumstances unfold, and I am purposely listed regular things, and then what is needed for that to become a reality, and/or become a stronger reality? Because I know the Christian response: It's a reality. Yeah, I'm there, I'm there, yeah, me too, right? I, yeah, I can, I can find that after 30 minutes, it pops in there, or once in a while, it's the first thing. So that's why I added the, or become a stronger reality, to buffer against the classic church response that takes place. But as life unfolds, is this what comes to mind? And the idea is, and this is what's hitting me on a verse that I've known forever, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Really? Is it? Then when life walks me into a very frustrating circumstance, am I seeing through God's word? I shared about the mower, right? The mower breaks, wait three weeks, breaks again, take it back. And I am purposely told the guys I was a pastor just because I'm like buffering against my own personality of like, it broke. I picked it up and it broke again. I feel like you should come mow my lawn. That's where I was at at the moment. Like, (laughs) looks like you guys are taking care of me this summer, you know, Um, but you on purposely, I started thinking about testimony, so it's, that's where I got the good church answer. I go, oh, I remembered on the lawnmower, but what about the well, and what about the blown tire, and what about, you know, a thousand other things that happen in life? Does it jump to mind? And then here's the question that maybe we, we close on, we can throw it out here. Um, what does it take to have God's Word come to mind? I've kind of been hitting on it, but what does it take? When it's not there, what does it mean? That needs to be there, right? There's studying it, there's memorizing it, there's applying it. One of the things we always do with the kids, I did for years, is uh, kids are amazing little brains, right? They can memorize. I had kids memorize 150 verses and it's like, oh, that's neat. Well, how neat is it? Do they know the verse? Do they really know it? Do they apply it? So we started going backwards in our kids program. This is about 15 years ago. I'm like, great, I'd rather them know 10 verses that they understand. So we've started having them apply the verses. Are you memorized the verse? What does that verse mean? And what's great is you start using their memory verses because when they act up, you bring them in the hall and you're like, hey, you know your memory verse? All right, tell me your memory verse. What does that memory verse mean? And they're like, we hate you, but this is the whole point of driving them to God's word to get their answer, right? We need to know his word. Uh, There was a prayer that someone recorded from this section and I think it's very poignant and helpful. So let me close with this one, sorry. It's a prayer that wrote, it says, Lord, let me be so immersed in your word that as they did for Jesus, your words spring to my mind, and I underline this, interpreting my moment, guiding my choices, and strengthening my heart. Let me repeat that. Lord, let me be so immersed in your word that as they did for Jesus, and that's the response to temptation at the devil, right? And when he's, he's hungry, and, and what, what, did, what did Jesus say? He quotes what? Scripture. It's Deuteronomy. So he just spits back Scripture. God's word comes back. It actually is setting a precedent for us, right? What do we do when we're faced with temptation? We answer with God's word. So that's this idea. What jumps to mind in life circumstances? So when life throws something at you, what do we need to do in this prayer? Let it be so immersed in your word that, as it did for Jesus, your words spring to my mind. Boom, interpreting my moment. And I underlined it. You can't see it, but in my notes it's underlined because that's what it describes it. It tells me what this moment is. That, that to me is so critical. I am an in control type of personality. I don't know what that's called, type A or whatever it is. I mean, I like to, and so I can force myself, I can frame my mind to make it do something, to function. But what really dr- jumped out is this idea of interpreting my moment. It's going to tell me what this moment is, not me, not Kenny's emotions, but, but God's word will. And then it guides my choices, and the result is my heart is strengthened in him. And so just remember that as you think about following consistently. Uh, his word is going to have to be what we follow. And then we're going to get to the next section, and I'll, we'll work through it quickly. And if we don't finish, like I said, we'll be talking about it. So throwing some things up there, but we'll go on to shelter consistently. But again... Let's have this word be the defining component of our life. It interprets life, it guides life, and therefore it is what gives us strength for our life.